But I remember it so well, Stephen coming out to the podium and saying, I will take the f film off the screen so you can just play the music with the orchestra and with its natural phrasing, the way it ebbs and flows in its own way, and then conform the, f the film to what is the best musical performance of that film. Very unusual. And I think part of the reason the end of the film has such a kind of operatic sense of completion. That was John Williams, and this is Underscore, a podcast of music and story. Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of movie music, one film at a time. I am Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will. This week we're going to continue our discussion of John Williams' enchanting score for E.T. with, at this point, an Underscore tradition. Today's episode is the spotting session for E.T. As always, our goal is to explore every single piece of musical score in the film and discuss the function of things like orchestration, motivic development, and other musically salient features as they relate to the overall story and the exact narrative beats of each scene. Precisely. Uh, now, there's something we'd like to mention before we get started today. As is the case with many beloved pieces of cinema, E.T. is a film that has seen several releases that feature various alterations to the original theatrical cut. Uh, many of these changes were made for the purposes of updating special effects and in some cases quite heavily altering certain aspects of the film including some rather famous alterations such as guns being replaced by walkie-talkies or right. computer-generated recreations of what were previously practical effects. Now, while there is some controversy surrounding the changes made in several of the home video releases, these are actually not the changes that concern us for the purposes of this show. Due to some of the re-edited scenes, length and timing of many of the music cues in the score vary slightly from version to version. So for this reason, we've decided to refer to the original theatrical release of the film for both this week's spotting session as well as next week with our feature-length commentary. And thankfully, this is actually the cut of the film that is currently available streaming on Netflix. We'd also like to remind any of you that are interested that we supply supplementary visual material at our website, underscorepodcast.com. For ET, we have brief score reductions for each of the themes we've discussed so far, as well as the complete list of cues if you'd like to follow along at home. Well, Will, let's pull up our red hoodies, jump on our bikes, and take to the moon. <laughs> I suppose this is as good a time as any to remind our listeners, spoilers ahead. Our film actually begins with a fairly straightforward title sequence with that purple colored font that so many of us remember. I always thought it was blue, but I guess I'm just colorblind. <laughs> It's an interesting shade of purple. It does hue towards blue. I and it's put against this black background, but I digress. <laughs> and uh, rather than introduce us to really any melodic material or even attempt to represent the warm, sweet tone of the film, John here captures an eerie and otherworldly, almost terrifying atmosphere, very fitting for an alien invasion film. 
This seemingly complex alien sound is actually produced in a rather simple way. It's the result of what's called a super ball, a small rubber ball being rubbed against a suspended symbol. If you recognize this sound, perhaps it's from a few months back when we were examining uh, Alan Silvestri's score to Back to the Future. You know, when you think about the use of, say, the Whittian mode in the score, as well as extended percussion techniques like this, you know, one could really make the argument that E.T. is among one of the most influential film scores. And particularly when examined in the context of this era, the early 1980s. Well, I think the neat thing about uh, symbols like this is that they boast an incredible spectrum of frequencies and sounds. Yeah. Some of them, to my ears, almost sound vocal, but I think it's right, an interesting a moaning or something. Yeah, completely. That it's so crazy. I mean, almost frustratingly so. How simple a technique it is to just scratch rubber against this metal, and you get all these incredible sounds. But it's so effective, and it's an interesting choice narratively. I think to set up a dangerous dangerous and mysterious atmosphere for this credit sequence. I imagine we're speaking for a lot of you out there when we say this is really a part of the score that we may tend to forget about, but like all first impressions, it's really of the utmost importance in setting the stage for this remarkable movie. Well, this brings us to our first numbered cue entitled 1M1 The Forest. Now, this cue bears the first bit of real tonal music in the film, and it begins with a statement of the call, that Lydian motive we discussed two weeks ago that's associated to the main flying theme. Here it's presented in the solo piccolo, starting with no harmonic accompaniment whatsoever. There's really something fitting uh, to me about John's choices here. Firstly, opening the film with the call seems to say really so much with so little. We have this Lydian modal color giving us a feeling of optimism and wonder, and it really does help prepare our ears for the central theme of this film. And by setting it in the piccolo, the highest wind instrument in the orchestra, as we covered a a few episodes ago on our, our real change, to me it really represents the distant celestial travelers coming from up in the sky uh, and really landing on the ground in this opening sequence. I agree, and I think that opening shot of the starry night sky is made to feel almost like deep space, you know, with this little piccolo melody. It almost sounds like Star Wars or something. You know, that moment (laughs) after the opening titles in Star Wars where you sort of pan down to see the planet and you have that wonderful piccolo idea. I I think John sort of associates there's something lonely about this piccolo in deep space. Uh, But yeah, there is something about that delicate little instrument that makes you feel almost insignificantly small in the face of a grand universe. But it also, I know you've mentioned this before many times, Will, that, you know, we sort of see John so often as somewhat of a moral or ethical composer. Right. Uh, He's really supporting what you ought to feel about a particular moment. (laughs) And I think the piccolo is, it somehow is doing this double duty of emphasizing the kind of isolation, but there's still a warmth there, sort of a human touch that you're supported by something, something good, hopefully. Right. Our call motif is met by one of the religioso themes. Last week, I believe we called it Earth. Uh, It's one of those two themes that we sort of associate with that opening act of the film. Uh, It's set here ominously in the strings with some subtle but effective wind doubling that 
really sounds, for lack of a better word, alien. To my ears, it almost yeah. sounded like a pipe organ because right. we have this really rich, low, deep string texture with the piccolo sitting octaves above what the violins are doing. And it was this type of voicing that was very familiar to me. It's like pulling out a particular stop. Right, right. Organ. That's sort of a common sound on, on pipe organ. A really novel alien sound, I think. This cue really takes us through the opening of the film where we see the little uh, ETs leaving their ship and walking around in the dark, uh, foraging for plants, seemingly. Uh, Photographically, Spielberg has made a conscious choice to obscure the faces of these creatures. And John's scoring instincts in this scene are playing right into that hand of really a shadowy, sort of mysterious presentation. Yeah, we hear plenty of strings, celeste, and members of the orchestra that create a very chilling mood. The religioso sections of the score here not only create an unease, but a genuine awe of these visitors from another world. The Majestic soon turns to the villainous as our danger motif first appears, uh, very sneakily at the bottom of the orchestra. This then leads us into really an action-heavy stretch of music as E.T. is chased by government agents through the woods as he tries to make it back to the mothership. Uh, The score here becomes really decorative and energized with abrupt stops and starts and these wonderful brass-led sequences. Yeah, as the mothership ascends, stranding and leaving E.T. behind, the regal brass convey sort of a dual emotional meaning. We hear these uh, really rich major seventh chords in the horns that seem to emphasize a bit of the pain and longing that E.T. feels, but with this strident presentation that supports the visuals of this you know, magnificent machine tearing off into the sky. As we return to a now stranded E.T., we again close the queue with several statements of the call motif, now interwoven with our danger, villainous material, uh, simply saying that E.T. is indeed alone, uh, and he's also being pursued by relentless mystery men. The next few minutes are without score as we're introduced to our protagonist, Elliot, and his family. You know, I think the dramatic shift in tone going from aliens being chased by FBI agents to sort of an ordinary, mundane, humble American family is accentuated by the lack of music in the scene. I totally agree. We've touched on it before in our Raiders episode and our Vertigo episode, and I think we kind of interpreted this as maybe a more classical school of film spotting, sure. which is in really dialogue-heavy or expository scenes. Uh, we don't even bother sort of fighting those moments with, with music. right? And that's sort of what happens here. But yeah, I completely agree. It's really so appropriate. I think for anyone that's recently watched Stranger Things, this might be the first of many moments in the movie where you might get a case of a little bit of deja vu. Sure. 
Uh, our next bit of music comes when Elliot hears sounds in his backyard, you know, when he goes to pay for the pizza. <laughs> he brings a flashlight later on into the adjacent cornfield that's kind of right next to their house. I always found that interesting. It's almost like they're farmers or something. Right. Uh, but once again, we hear the effect of the Super Bowl against the suspended symbol. You know, it's really interesting that uh, in the previous scene, we were being made to really empathize with E.T. through the music. But in this scene, we're feeling it entirely from Elliot's perspective. Right. And the sort of foggy figure of E.T. is a real threat. Yeah, absolutely. I I completely agree. And by returning to that technique from earlier, we're essentially experiencing, you know, first contact in real time with the character of Elliot. Our next cue entitled Looking for E.T. follows Elliot the next morning on his bike where we see this now troubled kid looking for answers. You know, who was this mysterious creature he saw the night before? And he's armed very famously with a pack of Reese's Pieces as a sort of bait. And I know in our family, it's become a tradition. Whenever we're watching E.T., we always have Reese's Pieces handy. I can't imagine we're the only family with that. But yeah, absolutely a tradition. I've always loved the idea of this sort of kid logic <laughs> of luring a creature with candy. It's somehow so sweet and simple a way of getting to know Elliot, you know, how he thinks and solves problems. Musically, our cue begins with a wonderfully mysterious chord construction in the high strings. Right. It's this a B-flat minor major 7 that chord. Herman chord. Exactly. But here it has a sharp 11th degree. And it's almost like the major or Woodian palette of the movie is being juxtaposed with the darkness or uncertainty of a minor chord. Uh, in fact, much of the opening of this cue really does evoke the music of Bernard Herman. Yeah, it's almost like Psycho or something. We hear that mischief motive, as we mentioned last week, that's often associated with, you know, kids on bikes. And here it's expressed, as it often is, with muted trumpets and strong hits from the orchestra and downbeats. This then brings us to our very first instance of the searching motif, that gorgeous lyrical theme we touched on last week. Uh, We hear first a sort of harmonically unstable presentation of the theme, which eventually returns at the end of the cue with very lush strings singing the melody. As the film transitions from Elliot on his bike to, you know, Elliot looking around in the woods, the camera tracks his movement, and I love this. Unbeknownst (laughs) to him, we see one of the government agents from earlier in the background of the shot, and at that precise moment that the man comes on screen, John treats us to another instance of the danger theme. The use of the theme there, you could argue, is really one of the most important in the entire film because it's the first time we hear it called back when there can be really no mistaking its leitmotif function. Sure. You know, we see a character come on screen and we hear a theme. It's not always that simple, but here the audience is purposefully meant to have a rather unpleasant view of these unseen adults. And that theme and its function in the story really personifies Spielberg's child-centered perspective in the movie. Right. And it's not really just those adults. It's adults in general. This whole movie kind of chooses to shoot people from the waist down. And it's like a caricature of adulthood. Right. Other than their mother, which I think also would resonate with so many children. Sometimes your immediate family are the ones that you trust and the rest of the world can be somewhat frightening. 
Well, and as Marty mentioned, this cue again closes with another instance of our lyrical searching theme, and the scene ends with Elliot riding off on his bike with this really rather dramatic crescendo in the orchestra. There's muted trumpets and tremolo strings as we see the hand of the agent pick up one of the Reese's pieces and I think this is really funny (laughs) it goes off frame and we hear this (laughs) this crunching sound like he eats it I don't know why I just find that to be such a comic moment and I think John is kind of supporting that because it's such a dramatic crescendo for something so small just a piece of candy right it feels like such a great uh, Spielberg touch really emphasizing humanity in every corner of the movie (laughs) wherever there's every moment Later on, we see Elliot in the yard again at night with his flashlight where he seems to have fallen asleep. Our next cue, entitled The First Meeting, begins once again with a presentation of the call set in the piccolo that happens in the scene just before when Elliot's kind of washing a dish and looking up and the longfully steam from the sink is right. almost obscuring the window it's really you know and it beautiful. cuts to him in his backyard he's asleep on the long chair with a flashlight but however this time the presentation of the call we have this unsettling string accompaniment where they're asked to play near the frog which is a part of the bow near the bottom end which holds the bow hairs and the hope of that is really to achieve a lot of friction and an almost pitchless rubbing scratching sound right and the music here becomes quite disturbing uh, with a subtle new harp melody introduced and it's a very alien sequence of notes that almost sounds like a serial tone row Uh, but it repeats several times in this cue it is something very particular and this chromatic and angular passage becomes really the principal melodic material for the rest of the cue and it seems to represent Elliot's uncertainty of this bizarre creature he has encountered Yeah, as E.T. slowly approaches, this alien motive to me reminds me of something out of like Metroid. Uh, But this alien motive is passed to various elements in the orchestra, and the music swells to a broad and massive crescendo leading up to E.T. reaching Elliot. We think he's going to, you know, reach out and grab him, but he actually drops the Reese's (laughs) Pieces. It's sort of a relief to Elliot and a release of some of the musical tension in the score. Marty, I know you and I were kind of talking about how effectively and, uh, John manages that tension and release. It's it's not kind of like the setup to a punchline in the way you'd expect. Right, yeah, he doesn't sting that moment when E.T. drops the Reese's Pieces. He sort of uh, emotionally doesn't let you off the hook. You're still really at rapt attention. Right, it's not until we see Henry Thomas's facial expression responding to it, and then, you know, we cut to our next scene. For our next cue, 3M1 into the house, The film uh, cuts to a now iconic shot of Elliot weeding E.T. with a trail of Reese's pieces up the stairs into his house. And musically, the cue begins with a set of harmonized, muted violin trills that imply this clustery D-flat major chord with the root, third, seventh, and ninth all right next to each other. We talked about these clustery, wonderful Williams chords. Yeah, but uh, here we just have two voices, but they're trilling back and forth, so we actually get the impression of four pitches the root third seventh and ninth and they're all smushed right next to each other and the call motive is played atop this texture once again with the piccolo 
And the simple juxtaposition of Elliot's nerves mixed with E.T.'s curiosity here in this moment is just another example of John Williams elevating and supporting Spielberg narratively. When the melody is repeated, John doubles the entrance of the low strings. There's this low drone that comes in with a sustained harp pitch in its lowest register. The first time I heard this, again, I was sure it was a synthesizer because the strings are consordino or muted, and apparently only the last stand of the cellos are being used. So it's a very unique, specific texture, and all of that mixed with that harp attack creates a very unique timbre, perfect for E.T. waddling up the stairs, I think. And eventually the horns enter with these uh, staggered entrances of ascending pitches and the piano and harp make a dramatic gliss as the trombones and horns sustain this dense sort of pantonal cluster as the harp plays this continuous scalar arpeggio while the sustained texture gradually dies out. Such novel orchestration, I think. The second half of this cue adopts a more pointed rhythmic character with these pizzicato strings, harp, and celeste. The music is very light and comic, but the harmonies here are still a bit uncertain, and the cue ends with an eerie bit of free aleatory in the violins where they're asked to gliss up and down ad lib with these artificial harmonics on the strings. It is a really interesting way of ending the cue with a bit of uncertainty that seems to co-opt Elliot's feelings in that moment, you know? Yeah, that's such an interesting thought. Uh, Our next cue is entitled Meeting E.T., and it takes us through the first moments of this budding friendship of our two main characters, Elliot and E.T., We start with what I think is a novel orchestration. We have these dramatic chords with muted horns and clarinets that swell into a scraped gong sound where the harmonies overlap with a muted string texture that's also quite dissonant. There's a sense of danger and exoticism, but then this brief little noble ostinato in the low (laughs) celeste gives us a sense of innocence. It's so lovely, and this all happens in a span of a few seconds. And really, the majority of this cue is a solo harp feature, and it is where we're first introduced to the friendship theme we discussed last week. And this beautiful harp solo here not only captures really impeccable playing, but also such impeccable taste and precision from John Williams. Uh, He's asked the harpist to play molto rubato, like a dream, (laughs) which is meant to really allow the performer a great deal of freedom rhythmically, but also Also, the way he has written the lines here with such natural strokes of breath and variety really gives this passage of music a completely organic feeling. I very much agree. The specific rhythms notated in the harp line seem to be at odds with what I often consider a fundamental principle of John Williams' arranging, which is the concept of an unending subdivision and the respect for momentum in his lines. Here, however, he seems to be thinking from bar to bar, completely different patterns in the accompaniment from eighth notes to sixteenths, triplets, back to sixteenths. It gives you know so much freedom, but also instruction to the performer to bring, like you said, Marty, so much organic emotion to the scene. And eventually we get these dreamy sighing string textures with these portamento slides between chords as they crescendo and diminuendo. And the harp is repeating this three bar idea as the strings almost seem to lull us to sleep 
alternating between uh, three, four, and four, four bars. And this is all very fitting with what's happening on screen as Elliot is literally falling asleep. Will and I were speaking earlier, and I think something that's so remarkable about this moment, but not very unique to Williams' writing for film, is that our introduction of this thematic material uh, is so fitting to really the particulars of this scene, which has both of our characters extremely tired and almost falling asleep. Orchestrationally, it just depicts that sense of sleepiness and the sort of haziness that comes with that so well that when it recurs later in the film, we can't help but remember this moment in which they sort of bonded really as they're falling asleep. Our cue ends with some forceful presentations of the danger motive setting the horns and ultimately the woodwinds with these tremolo figures in the strings. Again, he seems to have so much control over the narrative of the movie, and it has as much to do with his command of the orchestra and its timbres as it does with his iconic melodies. Right. Our next cue is an important one because it's actually an instance of music written for a later section of the film that was inserted into an earlier scene in the movie. What's amazing and almost uncanny is how well the music works in the scene, but also how powerful this instance makes its return reels later towards the end of the movie. You know, the cue was written for the scene when Elliot believes E.T. has died, but it's actually been placed into this innocent moment when Elliot is showing E.T. around his room, taking time to introduce each one of his toys. And it's a piece of music that is so emotionally powerful that it really makes it quite difficult not to tear up or all out cry, but it fits so well in this scene. Um, and it's really the full realization of our friendship theme. And even though we were just introduced to that material in our last cue, really having more instances of this melody in the film makes its uses in the last reel that much more effective because we do recognize it well and we associate it with Elliot and E.T. Completely. And we'll talk in greater detail about this cue musically when we get to its proper presentation later on. Our next cue is called In the Closet, and sure enough, this is a scene in the closet where Elliot introduces his brother and sister to E.T., uh, that kind of unforgettable moment when he says, I'm keeping him. Uh, this is another That's light terrific. in understated cue here. The predominant emotion is you know, charm and innocence, and once again, John makes heavy use of the friendship theme. Orchestrationally, uh, we again hear the use of harp, celest, strings, and in one instance, uh, a clarinet melody in its extreme high register. Like many cues in the film, uh, this music accompanies uh, an intercutting between focusing on the kids with E.T. and then the mysterious government agents on the hunt. As always, when we cut to the bad guys, we do hear that iconic danger motif, this time featuring not only low brass and woodwinds, but a looming celeste counter melody. The theme is sort of um, split into two, as it were. The neat thing about film music that connects multiple scenes, I think, is that generally 
with you know if things were recorded live with an orchestra composers often maintain a specific instrumental set in this case right. since we've made great use of the celeste in the previous scene it was only natural for john williams to utilize some of the same colors in this scene as well since they're part of the same consecutive cue I love thinking about the natural limitations of performance and recording that really do impact a composer's decision making. Our next cue is titled E.T.'s Magic, and this is the scene in the film when Elliot, his brother Mike, and his younger sister Gertie are in Elliot's room where they experience firsthand the mysterious powers of our little alien hero. Yeah, if we remember, the kids ask E.T. where he's from, and he begins to make these clay <laughs> balls start levitating in the air as though they were planets in the solar system. And this moment is actually the first point in the score where John Williams introduces us to the flying theme. And it's so fitting, not only because of the motivic association that's established with E.T. using his supernatural powers of flight, but also because that theme perfectly seems to capture the emotion of this particular scene. Something interesting to mention is that melodically, we do hear a slight variation of the theme at first. It's similar to um, what happens in the second repetition of the tune in the concert arrangement. In this instance, the half note, perfect fifth pair of notes is followed by an eighth note run that starts from the second degree of the scale, skips up a third, and then proceeds down to the root. Essentially, it's an equally effective string of notes, but it might make some wonder why he chose to introduce the melody this way. Yeah, we have a couple theories outside of just, you know, our own natural intuition. Uh, first of all, we have at this point in the film and even in this cue already been quite inundated with the call motif, our very Lydian theme that we've described already as being related to and very similar to the flying theme. You know, perhaps this is John's way of separating the two themes from each other. Right. I think another thought is that perhaps he's intending to save the quote-unquote definitive sequence of pitches for the moment when the bike goes over the moon. And perhaps this sequence of notes that starts on the second scale degree is a bit more inquisitive rather than triumphant. Yeah, you know, you bring up a good point, which is I think that often with Williams, and we've mentioned this previously with Raiders, there's not always such a thing as a definitive presentation of a theme, and that sometimes it's the accumulation of all these variants that really make up the whole. I also think that uh, in this instance, uh, this particular variation of the melody does seem to perfectly fit the scene because there's an ambiguity of emotions in that moment. The kids are mesmerized, but also a little terrified by what's happening. Right. Our cue proceeds once again with a few statements of that danger motive, this time building on the orchestration from the previous cue with that celeste counter melody, but now we add these creepy string arpeggiations to the mix ultimately ending with another statement of the flying theme still in that altered form of the melody. Now, if we remember the story, Elliot has already skipped a day of school by faking sick, so the next morning he has no choice but to go into school, leaving E.T. 
Home Alone with his little sister, Gert, who got the same idea. Uh, Our next cue, which is titled 5M1, Mary Searches the Closet, comes from the scene where Elliot's mother goes into his closet and we see the camera pan past all of these colorful stuffed animals. Um, You absolutely remember this moment with E.T.'s face going completely unnoticed by Mary. And he's such a good sport here of really knowing knowing what's called for. Right. It's awesome. It's almost like a Where's Waldo (laughs) moment. Right. It's a brief cue, but John really seems to play up some of the comedy of that moment, I think. We have this incessant violin tremolo with moments of cymbal scrapes, woodwind interjections, and these tension-filled harp glisses and piano lines that do seem to tee us up for his mother actually discovering E.T. And when she leaves the closet, uh, the cue ends with a very satisfied major ninth chord. It's almost this uh, musicalized sigh of relief. The next scene in the film is one of the most charming and the most comic in the entire movie. This is the infamous scene where E.T. and through telepathy, Elliot as well, get drunk. In this scene, uh, E.T. discovers the earthly wonders of the American refrigerator, uh, where he finds all manner of food and definitely drink. Fittingly enough, this cue is titled, E.T. Raids the Icebox. The principal texture at the beginning of this cue consists of bass clarinet, trombones, tuba, and timpani, with uh, these sustained interjecting piano splashes that seem to reflect that you know quasi-random alien motive that we heard in the previous reels, the thing that I thought right. sounded like Metroid. And this cue also marks the first instance of the theme associated with uh, E.T.'s antics, which we mentioned last week, that ascending, mischievous, limping idea we touched on. Uh, we first hear it set in the strings with uh, violins on the melody, while the flutes double these interlocking accompanimental voices that move in contrary motion, uh, exploiting these close major second dissonances. As the scene intercuts between E.T.'s actions and Elliot's reactions, John develops the material in contrasting ways, often saving some of the gentler textures for Elliot's drunkenness, you know, as he looks at that girl in his class, and the harsher, more pointed textures, you know, with muted trombones, bassoons, and piano, and the like, with E.T. stumbling around, you know, and dropping (laughs) things out of the fridge and watching TV. It's really fun. You know, it's really remarkable how choice of orchestration can really recontextualize a melody and give it almost a completely different emotional character. Uh, For example, when we first hear this theme for E.T.'s antics, it's set in the violins and feels uh, sort of tempting and inevitable. But later on, when he gives it a presentation uh, with clarinets on the melody, uh, the character becomes much more mischievous and uh, troublesome, but still with sort of a childlike innocence. Really, it's like this misbehaving little kid. Completely. And that literally is what happens on Elliot's (laughs) side as he ultimately decides to release all of the frogs from his classroom dissection. A noble act, but something that John's music definitely seems to color as wild and rambunctious uh we talked earlier about him being this moral composer that isn't without commentary on the actions of the right. film and this is a moment that when i was recently re-watching the movie i felt like 
you know, I feel like John is judging Elliot a little bit here. <laughs> but it's it's really in that moment when we hear the full flower of that antics motive with those major second dissonances, you know, pushed right together right. the entire time. The melodies almost harmonized in these parallel major seconds. And this sequence in the film provides such ample opportunity for a composer because the editing back and forth between these two characters that are connected on this spiritual, really cosmic level allows for a through line of melody, but uh, also a constant juxtaposition of tempo, orchestration, and tone. Now, there's something else about this scene that is completely unique and quite a treat for fans of film music. Totally. Uh, For those of us that have seen the movie, you probably remember well that E.T. is on the couch uh, in this great flannel shirt, and he's watching some uh, old movies that are on television. And it just so happens that as he's switching channels, one of the old movies that comes on is a film titled uh, The Quiet Man. Neither Will or I have seen it. But the love theme from the film features pretty prominently as E.T. is watching the sequence. And the heroine of the movie is trying to weave this house, and it seems like some sort of storm or something. And then the lead actor sort of pulls her in by the arm, in for a kiss, and we hear this wonderful Victor Young melody. And what's great is um, the way that it's timed out in the film we are kind of cutting back and forth between E.T. watching the movie and Elliot in his classroom. And we probably all remember the moment when Elliot, you know, gets his big first kiss. But what's cool about the music is that the first opening phrase with these woodwinds from the Victor Young comes from the original film recording. And then after the kiss, when that string melody comes in, it's actually been re-recorded by John Williams, and he does some alterations at the end to imply and quote the flying theme. It's such a lovely moment, and to me, that's one of those moments that you appreciate more and more every time you rewatch the movie. Right. As Will and I were re-watching it, we couldn't help but remark how sort of contemporary that technique felt as we were moving from really the, yeah, the highly lo-fi. filtered, yeah, lo-fi sound of the old television to this really sumptuous uh, high-fidelity orchestral recording. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that there's something really sort of fun, almost cheeky about the quote of the flying theme here at the end of the cue, but we are hearing the, we could say, proper version of that. Oh, that's theme. so true. Yeah, because you're hearing, yeah, na, 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 which but up very disguised because I don't know if we even would recognize what it is on our first viewing it's all this subconscious supplanting of little seeds and nuggets that ultimately make us accept that melody when it's presented in its true form our next cue is one of my favorites it's called bedtime stories and boy does john williams sure manage to pack in a lot of dense musical material into this roughly six minute stretch of the movie As is the case with many of the cues that we've looked at today, we open with, sure enough, another statement of The Call, again set in the piccolo, but compared with the opening of the film, we notice how much more elaborate the orchestration has grown. This time our piccolo melody is doubled a few octaves below in the bassoon, with elements like the harp, celeste, and strings providing harmonic context, as well as, you know, just a splash of color or texture. 
This cue really does take us through many of the themes we've discussed so far, including that broad religioso motif that represents Earth, uh, the call, as we said, as well as the friendship theme and the danger motif as we intercut to the villains. By this point in the film, our ears, I think, have consciously or subconsciously become well acquainted with all of these themes and their connections with the characters and concepts of the film. Well, I think it's really reflective of the place that we're at in the overall story that there really is all this intercutting and jumping between our heroes and villains. And you can really right. hear that in the music with going back and forth between heroic themes and you know, our villainous material. When Elliot comes home from school to find that Gertie has dressed E.T. up in her clothes uh, and some wonderful jewelry, if I remember correctly, <laughs> yeah. he also discovers that he has begun to speak. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> I taught him to talk so he can talk now. That's so, yeah, Drew Barrymore is just adorable in this film. And as E.T. famously says, E.T., home phone, and points up to the stars, uh, we hear a statement of that religious theme, that religioso material. And ultimately, the kids decide to help E.T. build a communicator so he can phone home. And the cue follows through to a really touching moment when Elliot and E.T. are in the closet of Gertie's room while their mom is uh, reading from Peter Pan. And at first, Elliot doesn't seem all that interested in the storytelling, right. but he uh, cuts his finger on the blade of the circular saw, something that's meant to be a part of uh, E.T.'s communicator. And there's this kind of unforgettable moment where Elliot says ouch and E.T. heals him by touching him with his glowing finger. The way that John sort of stabs that moment with the orchestra I think is brilliant. Yeah. He's able to accentuate you know the magic of that moment of you know the connection of their fingers which is sort of you know even that famous poster idea of the two fingers touching while maintaining though the through line of the heart melody that was underneath which is kind of, you know, scoring the Peter Pan story. And it's, again, using that friendship theme, this time developing it beyond anything we've heard thus far. Yeah, and I love that material as we get further into the friendship theme. And I know you've said this before, Will, but it's almost as though the harp is scoring this lovely little moment between Gertie and her mother. Yeah. And the rest of the orchestra really is scoring the scene for E.T. and Elliot. Isn't that clever? I just yeah. love that. And by the end of the scene, not only has the orchestra joined in with the harp, you know, telling the story, but we see that Elliot is actually now listening intently through the crack in the door. And, you know, he puts his arm around E.T. It's just such a sweet moment, I yeah. think. Yeah, it's one of the many iconic frames. I, I know it seems like we're repeating ourselves here, but there's really just so much memorable movie in this movie. Very true. The next cue features one of our few unique musical set pieces titled Halloween. Um, This music begins as the kids step outside. They're costume clad to begin trick-or-treating, or or so we think. E.T. is masquerading as both a ghost and uh, Gertie, even though he's probably much too short (laughs) to be (laughs) Drew Barrymore. Our music here is a playful two-step romp featuring a clever motive that emphasizes a major second dissonance. You can think of the sound to the opening of Chopsticks. And when our gang encounters someone dressed uh, in a Yoda costume, E.T. reaches out, seeming to recognize him. And then as Yoda walks away, we hear this understated quote of Yoda's theme from The Empire Strikes Back, of course, also composed by John Williams. 
prior to recording our episodes for this month, Marty and I had remembered, you know, the musical reference to Yoda, but we remembered it beginning and ending in that moment. But John Williams actually does something fairly remarkable here. Just minutes later, as the gang kind of reconnects with Gertie and Elliot and E.T. prepare to bike off, Williams expresses Yoda's theme again, and he actually twists and evolves the motif through this surprising turn of harmony as though it's one of the central light motifs to this film. (laughs) Uh, And the movie then rather dreamily cuts to our two heroes biking at evening in the woods. There's something really incredible to me about how John Williams passes the energy of Yoda entering the film. This rather, it's like a musical joke, this reference, Um, but he weaves it into the narrative and propelling us into probably the most famous sequence of the film, perhaps one of the most well-known in all of Hollywood cinema. As we cut to the two biking in the woods, the strings carry our sea motive from the flying theme in a wonderful, alluring variation as we follow our heroes biking through the woods. Our sea motive transforms through changes of harmony that really emphasize the mystery that the duo are plunging into. And then uh, the sequence introduces something fairly unique to the orchestral fabric of this film, prominent solo piano. The piano explores this same C motive while the strings play a sweeping and wandering long line phrase. It's just so gorgeous, one of my favorite moments. Our mystery continually evolves towards outright suspense as E.T. seemingly takes control over the bike propelling it forward against Elliot's will through the foggy forest. And with the next tight close-up on E.T., Williams begins the now world-famous crescendo. Over a harmony we mentioned in the first episode, a dominant seventh chord over a raised fourth in the bass. The tremolo triangle adds so much to this moment, I think. Completely. And the timpani crescendos, the harp glisses, the boys roll over the edge of the cliff, and... celebrated about this moment safe to say it's probably enough to make even the coldest hearted among us believe in the power of movies of storytelling and of music we mentioned in episode 5m1 how the b section accompanies these beautiful aerial shots of the forest you know with brass blasts really emphasizing the grandeur of high adventure Uh, but we actually hear the sound effects of these bird calls you know the rustling in the trees It seems to play right along with the orchestra, and it's something that honestly emphasizes and reinforces the concept of flight. It's something so beautiful, and of all the creatures, our winged friends in the sky happen to be some of the most musical. Oh, that's so interesting. We return to our A theme just as the boys head towards the ground, and Elliot says, Don't crash, please. But crash we do, with Williams winding the orchestra down masterfully. He has such impeccable taste for really to put it in broad terms, handling orchestral energy, really finding ways to turn and when necessary, wind that energy down. 
The next music we hear in the film is from a cue entitled E.T.'s Machine, and this cue begins with uh, our danger motif after the strange men leave their car to enter the house, Elliot's house. Elliot's mother has driven off to look for the kids. The men are nearly all in shadow and unrecognizable. As we cut to the forest, John begins a delicate statement of the flying theme, um, but orchestrated in a way that we would come to expect for uh, the friendship material, gently emphasizing the harp. We also hear brief statements of the flying theme in the horns as E.T.'s phone, so to speak, seems to begin working. Uh, Throughout, he quietly actually juxtaposes the call motif briefly in solo clarinet, I believe, and then with celeste as well. We cut back to the house, which is being infiltrated by the mysterious men. Uh, Naturally, this uh, involves an interpolation of our danger theme. Back in the forest, Elliot tells E.T., you should give them some time. <laughs> I think it's really sweet how he's trying to comfort this alien. Uh, but, there, you know, there doesn't seem to be any response to his message. At that moment, we begin to hear this soft, wistful music in the strings. Musically, it's a thematic idea we hear rarely in the film, and we've kind of left it unnamed. This actually isn't the first scene that it occurs. It, it tends to follow one of our religioso motives, and it happens in a very similar place that it actually occurred in the very opening cue of the film. It's this little call and response idea, this two note descending melodic idea that gets repeated. To me, it's representative of, you know, E.T. phoning home because you have this high little voice making a call and then a low voice making a response. It's a very simple motive, but we but do yeah, hear Yeah, there's it something very sort of uh, melancholy in character about this. Sure. Yeah. Elliot says, we could grow up together, E.T., and I think he even begins crying. It's, it's so sweet. Uh, the underscore also seems to introduce us emotionally to the idea of letting go and saying goodbye. E.T. seems uh, lost in thought, you know, of his people, but as Elliot cries, E.T. cares for him. One of the most incredible moments, I think, cinematically, where E.T., without saying anything, lifts Elliot's chin up, and the expression on his face is just unforgettable, and the highlight of the puppeteering of that incredible creature, in my opinion. But I digress. It's accompanied by a lovely passage of the flying theme in the celli. Elliot wakes up in the morning unable to find E.T., and he actually returns home, but he's in a pretty disheveled state, and his mother has been so worried. She's contacted the police. They had no idea where he was, so she's relieved that he's returned home, but Elliot is devastated to learn that E.T. isn't there, and so he's telling his brother, you got to find him, Mike. I think he says, out in the bald spot in in the woods. Right. you got to find him. Cut to our next cue, Michael's Search. This is, I would say, the most full-force rendition of the searching theme thus far. It once again alternates with the sort of mystery bicycle motif, that material usually representing the danger. At least in this sequence, there are some of these mystery men in a car pursuing Michael. It is a great heroic trumpet phrase of the searching motif as Mike eventually evades the mystery men. It's sort of his moment of triumph against the bad guys. And musically, we're hearing the same melodic material, but 
Just with an orchestrational change, John really does color that moment in a unique way narratively. Mike does ultimately find E.T., but he's extremely ill. It's actually sort of shocking, the state that E.T. is in when when Mike finds him. And Williams here weaves in many of our themes. Uh, The main theme, our searching material, and hints of our religioso awe motif. And next is a very memorable shot long cast silhouettes of some mysterious men walking up the driveway of the house, naturally set to the danger theme. William sets up this mysterioso alternating figure under Mike preparing his mother for what she's about to see, you know, because he finally, I guess, has to come clean and show her E.T. and show her Elliot because they're both dying. And when the ravaged pair of Elliot and E.T. are revealed, we hear a somber statement of the religioso awe material. I think right as E.T. kind of reaches out to her, it's very disturbing to watch, actually. We're sick. I think we're dying, Elliot says as his mother stares on in shock, and she gathers the kids, uh, leaving E.T. on the bathroom floor, and we hear the return of the motif Will mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that sort of melancholy, almost call-and-response figure, here emphasizing the pain in E.T. and Elliot separating. As these strange men in spacesuits, actually, these NASA, they look like, you know, Neil Armstrong. Uh, These strange men in spacesuits enter the house. The call motif fights with a disturbing, descending figure in the brass. Both Spielberg and Williams play the ensuing scene really like a horror film. The mysterious spacemen, you know, close in from all sides. That danger theme continually poking through. The music ends on a hard cut, which sets the stage for our next scene in cue. Men in suits enter our suburban neighborhood just as the sun is setting. Yet another of the film's uh, iconic images. And Williams here recruits the timpani and the Gran Casa as sort of uh, war drums, giving us our most bombastic rendering of the danger villain theme. We then cut back to E.T. suffering in the family's bathroom. All that wardrobe material stops for that. The music really shrinks to these quiet tremolos high in the strings. And the relative silence is almost deafening, you could say. It's, it's suffocating. And as the astronaut approaches, we hear the sounds of his breathing long before we actually see him approaching. It's really effective, I think. And we hear similar horror in the orchestration dramatically emphasizing the danger of E.T. finally being exposed. 
then on our next cut, which is uh, back outside in the setting sun, the bare war drum sound of the timpani and Gran Casa return as we see these suited strangers roll out a sealed tunnel in the uh, suburban street. Then we cut to evening and the house and yard are almost unrecognizable. They've been overrun by all this plastic tubing and tents. John Williams poignantly sets this scene to our other religioso motif, the theme we've come to associate with the dangers of Earth. Very fitting. I mean, I I know that a house is a construction of man, but somehow seeing all of this science and medical equipment take over this docile suburban neighborhood is kind of a sobering image and I think is part of the... I don't want to say social commentary, but there definitely is a a visual juxtaposition there that's meant to strike us on an emotional level. And John Williams is supporting that in, you know, a leitmotivic way. From this moment, Spielberg and Williams begin to set up a very effective reveal here. Uh, We hear further statements of our danger villain theme as our primary faceless man, the gentleman with the key ring, uh, suits up and finally enters frame. Uh, In many ways, we're meeting Peter Coyote's character, Keys, for the first time. What's interesting in the film and the score is that once we put a face to the danger, our villains gradually actually lose their menace and their theme. That danger motif is kind of absent from the last leg of the film. And that idea really is built in many ways out of the fear of the unknown. But it all disappears from the film. It's kind of, Marty, you've said this before, but it's almost like growing up. Yeah, it's sort of like the scales kind of fall from your eyes and things aren't quite as simple as maybe they once were. Our next cue, titled 9M2 Stay With Me, after a really sobering stretch in the film without underscore, during which we're introduced to Peter Coyote's character, Keys, while Elliot and E.T. are suffering in this makeshift military hospital. And the cue enters when Elliot and E.T., both now conscious, share a powerful moment of understanding, each expressing some form of stay or stay with me, which, as we'll mention, is the name of our cue. And it's an understated, almost ballad setting for the flying theme. Uh, Melodically, we at times blur the lines between our main flying theme and, appropriately enough, the friendship theme. As E.T. and Elliot's biorhythms start to diverge, you know, that one scientist guy comes in, he's got DNA! Marty and I were joking about that earlier. Uh, the music approaches really emotional torment with these almost aching suspensions in the string melody as Michael returns to their closet, E.T.'s old home, as it were. The celli and celeste begin this evocative, contrapuntal interplay. There's almost a surreal sense of calm until Mike notices the sunflowers wilting. Suddenly, everything plunges into panic. E.T.'s vital signs are crashing, and the strings dive into these shocking portamenti. It, it really feels just like scraping at your heartstrings. It's, it's so brutal to watch. 
right? You're almost plunging into yet another level of fear and dread. I mean, you know, the previous scene already had you confronting the potential loss of E.T. and this sequence begins to make it so explicit. By this point, E.T. has lost all signs of life and the medical team does scramble to revive him. They cart Elliot away and while he pulls the sensors off his face and body, uh, he screams something that he was whispering earlier. He came to me, he came to me, which is the name of our next cue. What transpires here is, quite frankly, one of the seminal John Williams elegies for strings. This piece embraces some surprising and painful dissonances, while the children on screen are literally in tears, heartbroken and destroyed. William's instincts here are really something to marvel at. The music is not only painful, but he chooses not to fold in any of our existing material. You know, there's no flying right. theme, there's no call, there's no friendship. Perhaps knowing just how insensitive those memories would be in a moment like this. The next few minutes are stark and sober. E.T. is pronounced dead and all of the children are in shock. After placing E.T. into cold storage, they allow Elliot a private moment with the body of his friend, and John begins his next cue. Titled in the score, E.T. Phones Home, known on soundtrack releases as E.T. is Alive. Now, this is the cue that we've encountered earlier on in the film, the now classic piece of music that was tracked into the scene when Elliot introduced E.T. to his action figures and some of the basics of life on Earth. Whether or not we'd heard this cue verbatim, this piece of music features some of William's most poignant musical storytelling, Absolutely. respecting the privacy of this moment, reflecting on their relationship with the music we first heard as they slowly fell asleep in Elliot's room. But beyond that, the construction of the specific musical material is just so right. fantastic. This cue opens with an absolutely unforgettable way of arpeggiating the chord sequence set in strings kind of spread out between you know celli violas violins with and then doubled with, double yeah on. doubled with bass clarinet and you know b flat clarinet it, it's such a beautiful moment we first hear the melody in the celeste and then ultimately it comes back later with the clarinets i mean we can kind of dissect things but it's a piece of music that its emotions communicate so much more than our words ever could i may have mentioned this before but uh, this is possibly my favorite cue in all of film music and each year that passes it somehow seems to add more and more meaning to my life personally but I'll try not to get off the beaten path here. Um, speaking of the orchestration it's once again very gentle and it's not fighting Elliot's critical dialogue which is spoken very quietly. Uh, he says Henry Thomas is oh a genius goodness. performer here I think. And I think the first thing he says to E.T. is look what they've done to you. Um 
And melodically, like Will mentioned, Williams takes us through the friendship theme, but once again, the full extent of the friendship theme, including the development we heard when E.T. and Elliot were alone during the bedtime stories. As ever, John Williams gives voice to Elliot's perspective, not letting us in on any of the storytelling foreshadowing. By this point in the film, on first viewing, many of us had fully accepted E.T.'s fate. But just as Elliot closes the door on E.T.'s medical tomb, his heart lights up in a way that's clear to the audience, but not to Elliot. As he passes the sunflowers, they're growing back to life, and Elliot can't help but notice. And just as he turns to face the flowers, we hear E.T.'s theme happily in the woodwinds once more as they're growing back to life. The remainder of the queue steadily brings us back to life. Uh, the repetition of the flying theme almost filling us with hope and air again after the bleakness we just endured. There's so much internal momentum. Right. Your heart beats again. Set against this is a repeating figure that also brings this momentum and surprising harmonic color to the sequence. And a bit of fun, too. There's something playful Yeah, yeah, especially because this is the moment when um, Elliot kind of has to fake crying <laughs> right. with some of the scientists. So the music is still with what he's feeling in his heart, which is euphoria and excitement. And there's a hope. There's a way. Now we really have to help E.T. escape and get him back to his family. Right, and yeah, in addition to really reflecting Elliot's emotions here, it does almost help us to prepare for further action and for really the final act of the film, which we now enter. Now, before we get into what I consider really the sacred ground of E.T., some of the most holy music in (laughs) all of cinema, we wanted to share with you part of our conversation that we had a few weeks ago with the legendary Conrad Pope, who, as many of you know, has worked on many occasions very closely with John Williams, orchestrating for a number of his films. We wanted to take the opportunity to hear some of Conrad's own thoughts on the score to E.T. Like you've heard me saying it. To be a film composer, you don't need to know every piece of film music ever written, but it's good to know at least three scores really, really well to the films that they go to. And that's one because it's perfectly spotted. You'll notice that there's very little music really in the front of it. The music starts to develop, but you have uh, unknown gems that wish we heard more of, like the Halloween scene, which is like, uh, you know, Bartok and Prokofiev wrapped up in one, but yet so charming and so delightful. John's influences uh, from other composers in that film, he takes his influences and makes them better than the original. (laughs) And that's an amazing feat. And it's just, it's hard to see the end of that film. Again, like I tell people, and it's not unique with me, uh, turn the screen off and look at E.T. without that raging orchestra. But I think the thing is that that's where you have a great collaborator. Spielberg knows how He knows that the images are in a way more important than the dialogue and that the thing that's ineffable, like the lighting and the music and these things that are almost immaterial, that when they sort of combine, the dialogue is the obvious thing and maybe the image, but the way it's lit, the way it's photographed and how the music is conceived, those things are the things that bring tears to your eyes and remind you of why you love music and remind you of why you like cinema. And it reminds you that 
a great story can leap off the page and come to life, at least inside of you, when those elements are all right and put together. Well, we finally reached the last leg of the film, where perhaps the most memorable and significant moments of the music occur. Our next cue is titled The Rescue, and this is the music that accompanies the kids as they plan and execute a rescue of E.T. We begin with some uh, stealth-heavy subterfuge, ominous music in the strings that seems to foreshadow a daring plan. Uh, as we said, the danger motif has been all but abandoned, but the mystery mischief motif becomes much more prominent in this stretch. Right, it kind of becomes our, our surrogate villain theme. Michael has taken the driver's seat in this white panel van disguised in a blue safety suit. A man with a walkie-talkie, this great character actor, sort of faux-politely asks him to step out of the car. Elliot um, tells Mike, you know, to drive off, and Mike responds, I've never driven forward before, <laughs> as he peels out a beautiful statement of the searching Just before they leave the neighborhood, they run into Mike's friends, and so Mike tells them to meet up at the playground and bring their bikes. And our mystery and searching themes now interplay as Elliot and Mike struggle with just how to get rid of the men that are tailing in the tubing behind them. If you remember, some of that plastic tubing that was rolled onto the street earlier is attached to the van as they're right. driving these away. these two men are kind of like rolling around on the inside of it. It's, it's a great little set piece, and it gives Elliot all this power it's kind of like now this little kid is in control it's kind of satisfying in a weird way but on a dime john cuts to a much more understated setting of some of our themes as gertie and her mother attempt to surreptitiously leave the house but are noticed by keys our peter coyote character gertie lets it slip that the boys are going off to the spaceship <laughs> And when we cut back to the boys uh, driving away in the van, we hear this appealing action phrase in the strings. Will and I both so love this moment, uh, but it's never heard again in the it's film. It's very evocative. It's major seventh heavy and featuring these large leaps. It's almost like he's, he's sort of using, dotted rhythm. It's right. really appealing. It's almost like he's using some early material for when he was composing the searching theme because it's, it's the same type of musical brain of these major seventh half step relationships and then these large intervallic leaps. As Elliot figures out how to lose the guys strapped to the back of the truck, he, he pulls out all these rivets in the plastic tubing. Williams transitions from the suspenseful strains of these triplets and the strings into a heroic statement of our searching motif. Once again, trumpet light action. When the friends finally all meet in the playground, Mike's friends witness E.T. in the back of the van wearing a white robe with heart aglow. Uh, he almost looks spiritual in this moment. Mm -hmm. And we hear these uh, interwoven statements of the call as well as the flying theme. And then the boys take to their bikes.
Wow, one of the most famous cues of the entire score. Well, we hear the final three cues back to back. This is the cue that John Williams is referring to when he tells the now famous story of Spielberg recutting the film to a free from picture performance. An adaptation of this moment to the end of the film was made for the original soundtrack and is frequently performed in concert titled Adventures on Earth. But this is what we mean when we're talking about the musical holy grail of so much of cinema. Right. And our memorable opening device, uh, inspired in part by the music and orchestration of William Walton, uh, seems to evoke the spokes and gears of the kids' bicycles here. This cue, like so much great film music, is almost perfectly timed. The tempo is just ideal for the pace of this action. And this figure is also of a Lydian character, constructed out of almost these uh, trills of major triads, uh, C to D major triads. And it also features this remarkable change of meter. You definitely notice it if you ever try to sing along to this part, that almost now iconic skip in the beat. Yeah, it's almost like a a skip in your heartbeat. It's (laughs) against this texture that we first hear our brass-led triumph. Uh, The sum of all these musical parts incredibly heightens the action and adventure of this sequence. As the kids take their bike somewhat off-road, jumping through these dirt hills that the cars can't reach, they're almost like, you know, BMX (laughs) stunt bikers. Um, Eventually, Williams moves into a slightly more subdued texture. It's one of my favorite moments of the queue where it's like, okay, our melodic fun is done. Now we have to get into the action. It's, I don't know. It's a wonderful moment. Uh, But masterfully transferring the orchestrational energy into the other choirs of the orchestra, never losing our driving motor, but adding these flourishes with woodwinds and strings and Honestly, even the decay of the brass itself as the bikes sort of volley over these hills, you feel the natural gravity and almost like the balletic quality of that scene. Completely, and that's sort of what we talk about when speaking broadly of John Williams' weaving energy. He doesn't ever allow it to run into a brick wall and just die, unless, of course, that would be called for in the footage. Uh, As the boys lose the cars that were trailing them, they finally think that they're in the clear. And we do hear our main theme, but it's not on very stable harmonic footing, almost seeming to say, (laughs) you know, sure enough, the coast was not clear. They're being pursued on foot with men in walkie-talkies, actual walkie-talkies. These are not shotguns that have been replaced. Cars close in on both sides of the street. Up ahead, an unseen man pulls a rifle out of his vehicle. We cut to a series of closer and closer jump cuts on Elliot's face, almost not recognizing the familiar suspenseful crescendo that's been building (laughs) up in the orchestra. As we cut to another close-up of E.T.'s face, the orchestra builds over that now iconic chord and... We lift off, echoing both visually and musically our earlier flying scene. The orchestra stretches out once again, singing our flying theme in sweeping lyrical string octaves. The group of heroes cross the sky on their bikes, this time riding along the setting sun. eventually making a much more elegant landing. 
The next cue, again, this is all part of the same recording, is titled The Departure. The transition is seamless, as we mentioned, taking us by the hand into the finale of the film. In terms of spotting, composition, orchestration, supporting character, I don't think it's exaggerating to say that this sequence alone could very well serve as a film music masterclass, and it's probably one of the things that won him the Oscar for this movie. (laughs) Very safe to say, I think. We begin fairly understated in the orchestra. Once again, hearing the call motif, Elliot notices a light shining down into the forest. It's E.T.'s mothership. Yeah, John Williams musicalizes the ship with this hypnotizing, romantic material that isn't heard anywhere else in the film. As the ship lands, we hear further statements of the call theme, and eventually something quite surprising, a fairly transformed statement of our danger theme as the gates, the sort of doors on the ship begin to open. That thing that's sort of ephemeral about music that you can't always, it it is like language in that sometimes there aren't these literal translations. This is one of those many, how does he do it, John Williams moments uh, for me. I doubt it would occur to many of us to transform that material right here, but it somehow plays with our heartstrings in a powerful way, alerting us of, I think, maybe a deeper emotional fear, not of villains, but of saying goodbye to someone we love. That's a really good point. Each of the children have their own moment alone with E.T. to say goodbye in their own way. This is somewhat tragic music in the strings for Gertie's tearful goodbye, you know, be good. Michael and E.T. share a wordless moment, um, wordless for Michael, I think E.T. says thank you. Uh, And John scores this with a beautiful otherworldly passage, putting to music perhaps what can't be said. As Michael walks away, the woodwinds foreshadow our next theme. It's time for Elliot and E.T. to say goodbye. And as they face each other, we hear our goodbye theme. Adding to what we've said before, the impact of this theme and the fact that this material has been patiently saved for this moment is incredible. It amplifies what is plain on the faces of our two heroes and weaves in and around their very spare dialogue here. Ouch.
As the goodbye theme reaches its apex, we unveil the friendship theme in the French horn. Everyone has their own John Williams made me cry moment. This is absolutely one of ours. Oh my gosh, every time. After their embrace, we hear reassuring statements of the call theme, and then as Ichi delivers his final line, the orchestra almost takes a dramatic breath as Ichi says, I'll be right here, and then his finger illuminates, and just after that illumination, we hear a heroic and assured statement of the triumph theme, holy in the brass. Yeah, there's this brief grand pause right before that moment that really tees it up for this kind of gulp. E.T. picks up his sunflower plant, and we hear yet another new piece of music, an almost Gershwin-esque B statement to the triumph theme in the strings, exploring some out-there kind of alien harmonies, these dissonances and resolutions. walks up the platform of his ship we're reprising our main flying theme we're cutting back and forth between uh, Elliot and everyone else in the forest and E.T. and it seems like we're building to some kind of orchestrational high but then just as the doors begin to iris shut he immediately scales the orchestra down into something so small, but also familiar to us. It's that lone piccolo from the opening. And (laughs) yeah, if you weren't already crying, this is such a stunning choice here. And actually, if anyone has seen the recent documentary, I think it's just called Score, the movie. Mm -hmm. There is, I believe, a psychologist who studies emotional effects of music, and she has some lovely words to say about that choice in particular of that quiet moment as our two finally see each other for the last time. And then in the last moments of the film, we have this incredible coda, essentially, where we're doing a lot of ultimate development of our flying theme motive, all these ideas building, and then we have this last little brass herald, this cue for when the spaceship sort of turns left and flies off into the distance creating that rainbow this lovely brilliant brass statement and ultimately the last piece of thematic music we hear in the film of E.T. is the call but it has been so transformed from its lowly piccolo isolated beginning it's now in the most muscular powerful sound so striking and strong in the French horns and then we end with I think one of John Williams greatest and most epic finales for a film this timpani role on on the tonic and dominant and it's marked in the score solo for the timpani and again though tonic and dominant our fifth relationship 
It's so powerful. <sighs> At this point, we feel like we've heard every single piece of iconic musical material in the film. And we're also closing on one of the most iconic frames of the film, the wind blowing through Henry Thomas's hair as he's looking up at the sky, now almost a man and not a boy. And then, of course, we cut to our credits music, a piano statement of our searching theme. We almost couldn't imagine there being another... Yeah, there's, there's almost a sleight of hand. We thought, like you said, that we were treated to this coda that reprised every single primary theme in the film. But he intentionally did not touch on the searching theme at all, reserving it for this moment here. And also something so subtle. This is a credits cue where immediately the lights come up, so to speak. The right. narrative ends on Henry Thomas's face. And that music gives you some let's get up and out of your seats and move about your day kind of a, a credits ending and all those triplet subdivisions are so buoyant and i think that that emotional intent of the credit sequence is evident in the fact of the first piece of music he transitions to from it which is back into our triumphant that music is walking music you know yeah absolutely I don't know if we fully touched on it in the past, but Williams, when he gets the opportunity to write original music for an end credit sequence, yet again has such impeccable audience instinct. He's somehow able to give us enough energy to leave our seats after a film like this. Will mentioned that we return to our bicycle chase setting, um, but here it has the added color of the piano, which is, I think, my favorite version of right, this device. I really still love the combined color of the piano and the higher woodwinds here. And I think many of us, myself included, when we're watching the credits of this incredible film are just struck by what an achievement, what a piece of cinema we just experienced and how much of that was contributed by Mr. Williams. This is a credit sequence that flies by so quickly because the music is simply that engaging. It's an unforgettable moment for all of us, but it's really saying something because this happens after nearly two hours of unforgettable and truly memorable, groundbreaking movie music. I think what can happen with a remarkable end credit sequence, it gives us an opportunity to reflect on the events and the themes and the character of the film but apply all of those strong feelings to the names of everyone responsible for making it. Well, and hopefully in our own small way, that's something that we can do next week during our feature-length commentary of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, because we have finished. We've gone through every single piece of music in the movie, and we've tried our best to, with due diligence, explore as much as we can all of the musical aspects, all the instances of thematic material and orchestration, but we can't even begin to scratch the emotional potency of the score, and I don't think anyone ever can, because music is its own language. Next week, I hope you'll indulge us and enjoy a bit of fun as we simply watch this movie and discuss it in real time. I can't imagine a better way to spend a couple hours. Yeah, we really can't wait. Also, this might be a good time to really invite some of your feedback. We'd love to hear some of your experiences listening to the show, in particular, the commentary episodes. Uh, How do you enjoy listening to them? Do you sync them up with the movie at home? Do you listen to it in the car? Is it at all entertaining without the film? Uh, We would really be curious. We hope that we're providing meaningful and entertaining content, but we'd love to hear your experience with the show. 
Yeah, as always, you can find every episode of this show at underscorepodcast.com. And if you would like to give us some feedback or have any questions, comments for the show, you can send us an email at the underscore show at gmail.com. We're also available on all manner of social media, Facebook, YouTube, you know the usual suspects. Underscore is produced by Will and myself and made possible thanks to our generous patrons, including Carlos, Jackie, Matthew Berry, Alex Death, Desmond Clark, Jordan Kolosinski, and Travis Anderson. As always, we can continue this conversation and you can follow us on Twitter at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. Until next time, everybody. And remember, we listen because we love. Take care. Underscore is part of the Mercado Brothers Podcast Network.